to Objection to the Rule, live, or not live, but pre-recorded on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, we are recording this episode on Thursday, April 29th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 2nd. My name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on air with my co-host, Emily Scott, Jasmine Smith, and then the background, you hear my puppy, Layla. How's everybody doing today? Layla! I'm she doing is- okay. Layla's not yeah. doing all right, though. <laughs> She's just like, I don't even know what she's whining for, but she's determined to make her debut on OTR today. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, my cat is looking at me. He just meowed, but I was on mute, so you're not going to hear him. But okay. they know that we're doing something and they want to be in the mix. Animal FOMO. I know, right? Okay, so on this week's episode, we'll be discussing the murder of Sarah Halimi in France, robot dogs and the NYPD, Good news from the world's oldest wild bird and the Supreme Court's rejection of giving juvenile sentences of life without parole. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. All right. So did did either of y'all watch Black Mirror? Yes, absolutely. There's this episode of that series called, I think it's called Metalhead. And there's these robot dogs that basically it's it's like this a post apocalyptic type storyline where like there's these rogue robot dogs that are you know killing people, and I bring it up because when I saw footage of these robot dogs being used by the cops, I thought of that immediately, like most people. So um, the article that I'm going to read off for you is called. NYPD sending its creepy robot dog to the farm upstate by Jake Offenharts, and this was on the Gothamist. So the NYPD is giving up its robot dog after the four-legged machine sparked ridicule, comparisons to dystopian sci-fi plots, and scrutiny into the department's use of taxpayer money. An NYPD spokesperson confirmed to Gothamist that they had terminated a contract with Boston Dynamics, which had, which had been leasing the DigiDog to the department since last year. NYPD officials initially said the camera-equipped 70-pound dog was, quote, going to save lives, protect people, and protect officers, un- unquote, by responding to emergencies too dangerous for police. But after video showed the dog trotting through a Manhattan public housing complex earlier this month, so it wasn't on the Bronx, my bad, it was in Manhattan, several lawmakers raised concerns about surveillance implications and argued that the deployment demonstrated the NYPD's over-policing of low-income New Yorkers. We keep hearing the same rhetoric from Mayor de Blasio that he believes in community-based policing, but I don't see any community that's calling for these creepy robots, said Albert Fox Kahn, the founder of the advocacy group Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. While the NYPD declined to share details about the arrangement, a subpoena from city council revealed that the department was leasing the dog for $7,850 with a minimum payment of $94,200. Comptroller Scott Stringer also accused the NYPD of failing to properly notify the city of the expenditure. Facing criticism, Mayor Mayor Bill de Blasio said earlier this month, 
that the NYPD should reevaluate its use of the dog if it was unsettling to New Yorkers. In an interview with the New York Times on Wednesday, John Miller, the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence and Counterterrorism, said the contract was terminated because the robot had become a, quote, target. People had figured out the catchphrases and the language to somehow make this evil, Miller said, adding that it was a casualty of politics, bad information, and cheap sound bites. But it was not out of the question, he said, that Digidog could one day return to the streets of New York. So yeah, like I just, I also wanted to mention, um, there was a footage of it going around the housing project looking very creepy, but it was also, there was one that was actually used and that was in the Bronx, like where a pair of men had been held hostage and the police used this robot dog I guess, to like go in and try to see if they could find the suspects who were torturing these people. It didn't work. Like they had to, they, I guess, found them through traditional means. Um, But people that are proponents of using the dog, this robot dog, say it creates distance between like a police officer and the people as opposed to like a human, you know, making a decision in the moment. Um, They say that, you know, it's not, a stealth thing like it's loud it makes noise um but then the credit some of the criticism is like you know the cost like how much it costs to have one of these and why not invest that money in something to prevent crime and also um, this one that they had in the NYPD didn't have a weapon on it but there was something like this used in Dallas to like detonate a bomb and it killed someone like the the person had been you know was a I believe he was a mass shooter, and they were able to use one of these dogs to go in and like detonate a weapon, so there's a lot of concerns about um the fact that it does take pictures, it is like a surveillance tool it can you can put a weapon on it like they didn't do it this time, but there's also the worry about like increased militarization of the police because it is, you know, something that comes from like defense technology. So yeah, I'm I'm somewhat relieved that they sent it back, but I'm curious what you two think about this type of weapon or that not weapon, this type of technology. Well, I've seen the videos of it. Um a couple of weeks ago and it first of all it looks terrifying um i didn't expect that i would be so scared of it so it it has the appearance of a real dog um it definitely makes you feel paranoid for sure <laughs> but um yeah i really don't like this i don't like that um there's another weapon right it's literally another weapon that they're using against us for the sake of whatever they think it is um, the real dogs are enough, aren't they? Yeah, it's very creepy. It's very, I think, um, bringing up Black Mirror was a really, um, not only like, um, surface level good comparison, it is that like dystopian sort of like, kind of like what the fuck situation, like, um, alone the the extra cost and like really like what are you getting out of it of course what you brought up is is one thing but then it is like the whole psychological thing of like you know treating it, it's 
using this technology in a very um, dehumanizing way, which I think is also a word that you said in your story too. Um, you know, it's saying that whatever people you're dealing with, like, and I, 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 I guess the the argument is that it comes from a place of fear and protection for like officers or whatever, but it really does feel like, well, these are like, whoever you're dealing with doesn't need, doesn't deserve to be dealt with by another human being. Um, brings up like kind of like a comparison to drone warfare in my mind too, where it's like, if you take out that human element, yeah, it, it, it creates a big opening for some like um, abuses for sure. There's so many things with technology that it gets presented as like a, just because it's new technology and it's cutting edge, that does not mean it's automatically a good thing. Or like the intention might be good, but then when you think about all the ways it could go wrong, you know, that that always seems to be downplayed, you know, because now we have a bad enough issue as it is with like police brutality and surveillance. And that's with people that you actually know their names and stuff like this. If it then becomes like you almost have this layer of your hiding behind this machine then it's like, who is then accountable for the things that the machine is doing? You know, is it anybody or is it like, oh, well, it just, or if it malfunctions or something, like it just, it's too many unknowns and it is very, it does remind me of drones and stuff like that. It's it's very much like a wartime. Yeah, it's pretty unsettling. If you've seen any of the videos, you know, I was thinking about um, the kids, you know, who are seeing this thing and like kind of, you know, would be fearful as an adult. I was fearful of it. You know, the, the real dogs, like I said before are enough, but to have this sort of, you know, mechanical thing that we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. Um, if it's unleashed and if it malfunctions, you know, we cannot give them other methods of no accountability. That's some bullshit, you know? So what you're going to blame it on the dog. Now it's always something. It's always, it's always something. It's never just, can we just police and try to keep people safe? It's always uh, intimidation and fear uh, creating this sort of um, unrest in people. So when you see the cops, you just freak out. And now you're going to see a little mechanical machine that's, that can possibly kill you too. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I, I do feel like the the messaging is one thing where it's like, oh, like this is safe. Or like, I can understand things where it's like, if a person has a bomb and you're like, you're using a machine, like, which they already do. It's like, they'll often send a robot in to disarm uh, an explosive device as opposed to sending a person in. But this, it's like, uh, there's just too many ways that it could go wrong, that it could be misused and abused or like, and it just seems also like extremely wasteful. Like I, when I saw that $94,000 price tag, I was thinking, you know, how much rental assistance could you give, you know, a family for that much money that would probably keep them from getting involved in something criminal, but you're spending it on a toy, you know, on like a RoboCop dog thing. Um, so just on that level, I think it's, it seems wasteful. It's not super clear, like how useful it would even be on top of like all the potential for it to be used for something nefarious. So I'm glad that they're not using it and hopefully that money can go to something else. 
Absolutely. There's so much more that they can spend that money on and stop intimidating people with your new tools. Like to me, it just seems like another weapon of destruction that they can use and hold it accountable for some bullshit. So, well, I'm glad that they are not using it or taking it back. So we'll see what happens, but be on the lookout people because that's the next episode of police bullshit (laughs) coming our way. Uh, Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Definitely important. We're going to go ahead and take our first music break. The first track comes uh, from a really cool artist called Yoni Myres, and the track is called Snow. We'll be right back. Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I have the national news this week. This story comes from a review from NPR and also some information from the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, The title of the article is called Supreme Court Rejects Restrictions on Life Without Parole for Juveniles. The U.S. Supreme Court's new conservative majority made a U-turn on Thursday, ruling by a six to three vote that a judge need not make a finding of permanent incorrigibility before sentencing a juvenile offender to life without parole. It was the first time in almost two decades that the high court has deviated from rules establishing more leniency for juvenile offenders, even those convicted of murder. At the center of the case was Brett Jones, now 31, who was 15 when he stabbed his grandfather to death during the fight about his girlfriend. He was convicted of murder and a judge sentenced him to life without parole. 
Quote, in such a case, a discretionary sentencing system is both constitutionally necessary and constitutionally sufficient, end quote, the court's conservative justices wrote. Writing for the majority, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said, quote, as this case again demonstrates any homicide, and particularly a homicide committed by an individual under 18, is a horrific tragedy for all involved and for all affected, end quote. He also added, determining the proper sentence in such a case raises profound questions of morality and social policy. The states, not the federal courts, make those broad moral policy judgments in the first instance when enacting their sentencing laws. The states and state sentencing judges and juries then determine the proper sentence in individual cases in light of the facts of circumstances of the offense and the background of the offender. So basically, he's saying that it's up to the states to make decisions on how they handle sentencing for juvenile offenders. Over the past two decades, the law of juvenile sentencing has changed significantly. The Supreme Court, primed by research that shows the brains of juveniles are not fully developed and that they are likely to lack impulse control, has issued a half dozen opinions holding that juveniles are less culpable than adults for their actions. And the court has also ruled that some of the harshest punishments for acts committed by children are unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment. After striking down the death penalty for juvenile offenders, the court in a series of decisions limited life without parole sentencing for the rarest cases. Those juvenile offenders convicted of murder who are also incorrigible that there is no hope for their rehabilitation. But all of those decisions were issued when the makeup of the court was quite different than it is now. This case was the first time the court has heard arguments in a juvenile sentencing case with three Trump appointees on the, on the bench, including new Justice Amy Coney Barnett, who replaced the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, last fall. Previously, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who retired in 2018, repeatedly was the deciding vote in cases involving life sentences and other harsh punishments for juvenile offenders. But with Kennedy retired and replaced by Kavanaugh and the Ginsburg replaced by Barnett, the court in this case indicated that it is not inclined to go the extra mile to protect juvenile defenders from the harshest punishment. punishment. Jones was originally sentenced to life without parole in 2004, but when the Supreme Court ruled that those like Jones, who committed crimes when they were minors, could not be automatically sentenced to life terms, he had to be resentenced. By then, he had spent a decade in prison, had graduated from high school, and earned a record as a model prisoner. At his resentencing hearing, the judge did consider Jones' youth at the time of the crime, but again sentenced him to life without parole. The judge did not make any finding that Jones was so incorrigible that he had no hope of rehabilitation. Jones's lawyer appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, contending that consideration of a defendant's youth is not enough and that Jones, now in his 30s, should have at least a chance at parole because he has shown he is capable of rehabilitation. Jones's lawyers appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, contending that consideration of the defendant's youth is not enough and that Jones, now in his 30s, should have an opportunity to speak of why he has been rehabilitated. 25 states ban life without parole for juvenile entirely. 
and six more states do not have anyone serving that sentence for a crime committed when they were juvenile. But 19 states do allow life without parole for juvenile murderers. In the withering dissent, in a withering dissent on Thursday, Justice Sonia Sotomayor used language from the Justice Kavanaugh's past opinions to write that the court's decision was, quote, an abrupt break from precedent. She accused she accused the major majority of using contortions and distortions to circumvent legal precedent. The majority said this. The majority said, the majority, she said, is fooling no one. The court's previous rulings, she wrote, required that most children be sparred from punishments that give no chance for fulfillment outside prison walls and no hope. She quoted Jones as saying that his resentencing hearing Quote, I've pretty much taken every avenue that I could possibly take to rehabilitate myself. I can't change what I've done. I can just show. I've become a grown man, end quote. Thursday's ruling will certainly make it more difficult for juvenile offenders like Jones to show judges they deserve another chance at freedom somewhere else down the road. So this is the recap of the story. Um, what do you ladies think? Um, it's pretty frustrating i personally i think whenever i hear about um people deciding you know in a related way to try minors as adults because of like the severity of the crime for example it's like well the reason we have a separation between minors and adults is because of their children still right like the science like his like history and science has shown that they are not um fully, fully yeah they're not fully developed and I, you know I, I mean I guess there's gonna be a rare example of um you know a serial killer type or like someone who like really will you know should not be released back to the public but I think that is right. so rare in comparison to how often a minor is tried as an adult and is put away for life um and I don't think that the the barriers to to doing that are strong enough right I think it's probably pretty arbitrary a lot of times um, when it is and is not applied. Um, yeah, it, it's upsetting, I think. I think especially with, you know, Kavanaugh's nasty ass. Like, he himself has a history of doing horrible things when he was a young man. Like, when he was, a, I think, in his teens. Like, he may have been over 18, so probably technically an adult. But, you know, these things are also already, they're also always disproportionate in their application. It's like it's only certain types of people get the benefit of the doubt or get or, or have the ability to use that boys will be boys or youthful indiscretion or they were too young to really know what they were doing and let's not ruin their life. But then when it's a different type of person, all of a sudden it's, you know, throw them away and lock away the key. So, yeah, it's it is disturbing and it's not who who has more potential to change and do better, if not a literal child that did something wrong. Exactly. You, know? you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say that, you know, there are so many people who create who committed crimes not knowingly as a child who made mistakes who went down the wrong path who may have been coaxed by someone else to do something illegal okay we all can look at our past to see things that we've done and then and, and we have had mercy because we weren't find out found out 
right? But at the end of the day, these are literal children that you are taking the opportunity to grow and advance in life, to course correct, to be great contributors to society, to go on to college and do things for other people. You're literally taking that opportunity away from them. This particular case, you know, um, involving uh, Mr. Jones, obviously he was young. He was 15. He killed his grandfather. That's enough grief for a young person to deal with. Then let alone your whole life is over. You know, it's arguable that at the time when they created these laws that maybe they were, you know, considering that these people may be threats. And yes, there are assholes that are assholes as kids, murder as adults and go on and do horrible things. But that's not everybody's fucking story. You know, that's not the case. And there's, you know, I personally have been affected by some dumbass uh, systematic um, just the way that the courts will assign things to people that they don't deserve. That has been uh, some history in some people that I know and in my family. And, and this in particular could have put away my nephews or anyone else for wrongdoings that they did not have control over because of their mental health. And I'm, you know, I'm speaking very um, transparent about this because this is some bullshit. At the end of the day, if they're leaving up to the state to decide how to deal with juveniles, they do not value our children. If this cannot be a federal mandate that we can work on changing these laws that affect your children, my children, and anyone else's, then we are not really doing anything. What are we doing when we're putting children away for life? Let's reconsider that and think about the circumstances that we have all had to deal with in our lives. There's so many people who are locked up because they made one dumbass mistake and they never had a chance to fix it. Do not take that opportunity away from our youth. You know, I, I don't remember the person who said it originally and I won't get the exact quote right, but they were saying that, you know, anyone, whenever you see someone commit an act of violence, it's almost never the first time like that that they've been involved like they usually have a history of having been a victim of some type of violence and it seems like he like his father went to prison for a felony DUI his mother married someone else who abused um, the boy and also his brother and then he ended up living with his grandfather who according to the boy was like would yell at him and blame him for what happened with his parents so these are all situations where it's like there's so many points where there could have been an intervention or there should have been an intervention or, you know, it's like the father committing a DUI is terrible. And I'm, I'm sure someone was hurt or killed when that happened. What did taking him out of the home and putting him in prison do? That was helpful. It then led to like the ripple effect of like now you've taken someone's parent away and removed them. Now that parent is replaced by another violent person. And then the child is a victim of violence is then taken from the home and like is with, you know, an older man that is verbally abusive to him. And then this happens. And then now he's locked away for like the rest of his life, presumably just probably a further victim of violence, probably learning how to become more violent from the people around him. It's like, what is the point? 
like truly what is the point like it's just punishment on top of punishment that just leads to more and more of the same and the and more like it multiplies it you know by doing this yeah this is not justice okay this is not justice and this is a direct reflection of donald trump's policies playing out donald trump's bullshit affecting us now so all of you who decide you don't want to vote or you don't want to be a part of these things be mindful of how your inaction creates the future for us okay so i'm just i'm just standing on this this mic right now to make sure we all are aware what is really happening this is something that we do not need to be the way we do life in america okay especially now with everything that's going on the youth is out here suffering in all kind of ways. So if this is what they can look forward to, what are we doing about it? Please share this story with other people, have conversations. We have to find ways to protect our youth. They cannot be the most vulnerable and be the most vulnerable at the same time. So that's my story. And on that note, we're going to take another musical break. This song is by Amber Mark and the title is Worth It. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn.
back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Brooklyn. And now we will jump into our international news story. Emily, what do you have for us today? All righty. Um, so for the world news this week, I'm covering uh, the story of the murder of Sarah Halimi in France. Uh, sources for this information come from the New York Times, the Times of Israel, and The Guardian. Um, and this is a long story. It was pretty interesting doing the research for this. I, I went into it knowing like one thing that I'd been learning a lot on social media and you know wanting to read more about. And I ended up learning a whole lot more about the situation than I thought I would. Um, but here I go. All right. So starting, this actually, um, starts a few years ago already. So in 2017, Sarah Halimi was a 65 year old Orthodox Jewish woman, uh, living in an apartment in Paris's Belleville district. She was a mother of three, a retired physician and a kindergarten teacher. Um, she also went by the name Lucy Atal, uh, a man named Kobili Traore, was Ms. Halimi's neighbor and described as being Franco-Malian and Muslim uh, in the Guardian article um, that I grabbed a lot from um, for this research. Um, so this next bit, a little bit of a trigger warning because it's pretty graphic for anyone listening um, and does not want to hear this. Uh, so in 2018, in a 2018 article for The Guardian, um, the author James McCauley outlined the events that occurred in the early morning of April 4th, 2017. Uh, quote, a 65-year-old woman was hurled from the third floor balcony of a social housing project in the 11th arrondissement of Paris, a rapidly gentrifying area on the eastern side of the French capital. An hour earlier, that same woman, a retired doctor and kindergarten teacher, uh, had been asleep in the small apartment where she had lived for the past 30 years. When she woke up, she saw the face of her 27-year-old neighbor in the darkness. The man, who still lived with his family on the building's second floor, had first stormed into another apartment, whose tenants had locked themselves in a bedroom and called the police. By the time he climbed up the fire escape into his victim's apartment, three officers were present in the building. The autopsy would later reveal that the woman's skull had been crushed, most likely with the telephone on her bedside table. Before and after his victim lost consciousness, the assailant beat her until the nightgown she was wearing, white with a blue floral pattern, was soaked with her blood. He then dragged her body to the balcony of the apartment and threw her over the railing, exactly the same way he told prosecutors, as John Travolta does in The Punisher, the film he had been watching before the attack. I killed the shaitan, he yelled from the balcony, according to testimonies given by neighbors. Shaitan is an Arabic word for devil. Neighbors heard him repeatedly chant, Allahu Akbar. Um, so Mr. Traore confessed to the crime and, quote, later told authorities he knew that his victim was Jewish. In a New York Times article from April 17th of this year, 2021, uh, author Roger Cohen writes that Traore, quote, had been troubled by Miss Halimi's mezuzah. Uh, the Guardian's 2018 article, however, notes that, quote, Traore was ve has vehemently denied that anti-Semitism played a role in his crime, claiming instead that he acted in the throes of a, psych uh, a psychotic episode triggered by cannabis. So this year, again, 2021, um, that the Times article I referenced above gives an update on the case explaining, quote, the highest court in France has ruled that the man who killed a Jewish woman in 2017 in an anti-Semitic frenzy cannot stand trial because he was in a state of acute mental delirium brought on by his consumption of cannabis. Quote, the verdict more than four years after the killing ended judicial, judicial proceedings in France for the case. 
The verdict came after a lower court ruling rejected the trial and the Halimi family appealed. President Emmanuel Macron made an unusual personal intervention by calling for the case to have its day in court. Outrage in the large French uh, community has, uh, sorry, French Jewish community has accompanied the long uh, failure to try Mr. Traore. Quote, in its ruling, the court noted that under French law, a person is not criminally responsible if suffering at the time of the event from psychic or neuropsychic disturbance that has eliminated all discernment or control over the acts. The court said the law, as currently written, does not distinguish between the reasons for the person's condition. Even someone who, like Mr. Traore, enters a delirious state because of voluntary drug use cannot be tried. The court ruling has sparked worldwide protests demanding justice for Sarah Halimi, um, uh, seen on posters and things. Um, the Times of Israel reported demonstrations in Israel, the UK, and the US, as well as a protest of about 25,000 in Paris, quote, many of them Jewish. So one of the psychiatrists who examined Mr. Traore gave an interview in the magazine Marianne, uh, and the New York Times translated part of it in one of their articles. Uh, quote, Mr. Traore, he said, was hallucinating well before the murder itself, engaging in long soliloquies, responding to imaginary voices, and consulting an exorcist. The level of THC, the main psychoactive compound in cannabis found in his body, was low to moderate, leading him and other psychiatrists to, to conclude that the drug was a cofactor, not the cause, in the assailant's blast of delirium. The sight of a menorah and the fact Ms. Halimi was Jewish were the spark, said Mr. Ben Susan, uh, who is Jewish. The crime was that of a madman, but his crime was anti-Semitic because in his delirium he equated Jews with the devil. Public indignation and that of the Jewish community are, I believe, related to the false idea that recognizing insanity and the lack of penal responsibility mean denying the anti-Semitic dimension of the act. The Guardian explains that another psychiatrist who examined Mr. Traore, named uh, Daniel Zaguri, uh, Zaguri um, quote, pointed out that the particular form delirious episodes take is always shaped by society's atmosphere and world events. Today, it is common to observe during delirious episodes among subjects of the Muslim religion an anti-Semitic theme. The Jew is the side of the evil, the evil one, he wrote. What is normally what is normally a prejudice turns into delirious hatred. On April 26th of this year, the New York Times reported, quote, the French government plans to introduce a bill aimed at closing a legal loophole that allowed the man who killed a Jewish woman in an anti-Semitic frenzy in 2017 to escape trial because a court found that he was in a delirious state brought on by cannabis. Um, on April 28th, the Times of Israel reported the following, quote, outraged by, outraged by a high court's ruling in the Sarah Halimi affair, a French Jewish judge has quit his post. I decided to resign over the ruling, which at first I couldn't believe. Jack Broda of the Tribunal of Commerce of Nancy in eastern France told Le Figuero. Figuero. My resignation was accepted and regretted. So, Jasmine, um, you recently did a story about France as well for the World News. Um, and the following quote from the Guardian article, I think highlights a lot of similar issues that we actually talked about um, during that story too. Um, so quote, the French Republic is founded on a strict uh, universalism which seeks, which seeks to transcend or depending on your, your viewpoint of face, particularity in the name of equality among citizens. In a nation that tends to discourage identity politics as communautaire, 
and therefore hostile to national cohesion, the state not only frowns on hyphenated identities, but does not even officially recognize race as either a formal concept category, either a formal category or a lived experience. Uh, since 1978, it has been illegal in France to collect census data on ethnic or religious difference on the grounds that these categories could be manipulated for racist political ends. But eliminating race did not eliminate racism or racist violence. In the case of Lucy Atal, the inescapable fact of the matter is that a Muslim killed a Jew in a society where those distinctions are supposed to be irrelevant. More than a year after the act, exactly how to label Atal's death remains a, a, bit, much, a matter of bitter and perhaps unresolvable debate. To examine the case is to examine the fractures of the French Republic, the contradictions in the stories a nation tells itself. The same article also explains, quote, but one reason the case became so notorious is, is that it fits into what has become a common narrative. France is the only country in Europe where Jews are periodically murdered for being Jewish. No fewer than 12 Jews have been killed in France in six separate incidents since 2003. Sebastian Salam, Ilan Halimi, Jonathan Sandler, Gabriel Sandler, Arya Sandler, Maria Monsenego, Johan Cohen, Philippe Braham, Francois Michel Sada, Yoav Hatab, Lucy Atal, and Muriel Noll. It's also important to note, again, with all of this, another angle in this really complicated story that right wing people in France, like Marine Le Pen, have um, use what they what they call Islamist anti-Semitism to express the message that the Guardian summarizes as quote that the French Republic and Islam were fundamentally incompatible. Um, again, which is an issue that um, in Jasmine's story we talked about as well. Um, you know the the right wing in French and like trying to really suppress the ability of um, Muslim people to like express their religion. Um, and how that big of an issue that is in France as well. Um, so yeah, so there's there's a lot in the story. I didn't, um, I've been seeing it a lot um, specifically related to the legal decisions coming up on my social media um, and like Jewish networks. Um, but what I have found is that it really hasn't come up a lot in um, outside of France in non-Jewish circles. So I was wondering if you guys had heard about the story and like your thoughts on it. I know it's like a lot, a lot of to process, a lot of different angles, um, and what was going on. No, I had not heard about it. And it's so it's I, as you were reading what happened, I was putting myself in her shoes, like how horrifying that must mm -hmm. be. And like, before he got to the woman he eventually killed, there yeah. was, he was in somebody else's mm -hmm. apartment and they locked themselves away. Mm -hmm. Were they also yeah. a Jewish fan or it was just people, another neighbor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I what I was, it was just another neighbor. Um, from what I was reading, it was actually a very diverse um, housing project where um, uh, the community you know, there were, yeah, Jew, Jewish people like Sarah Halimi and then also um, non-Jewish people as well. Um, so I think, yeah, just, I think it just happened to be random. Um, I, I don't, I couldn't read anywhere, whether he was speci specifically seeking her out. Um, some of the stories recount that she was frightened of him, um, previous to when that occurred and that like, they were on each other's radar already. Um, okay. But again, I guess that's secondhand information at this point. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, again, it's like everything is saying 
this is anti-Semitic. He obviously was triggered by all this, but um, his story, he, I guess he, he knew she was Jewish, but his story all along was that like he had a break and that he wasn't specifically targeted. You know, it's where, where the line is, the, the way the article really breaks or the different things I was reading, um, especially the guardian article, like what the line is between having a psychotic break and, and it, I guess being a hate crime, you know, and like, it's just so weird and interesting and scary and layered about like where you would even, you know, where one ends and the other begins, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they, they're not mutually exclusive, which I think a lot of people have trouble with that. Like it's Mm -hmm. not an either or thing. Like you Mm -hmm. can have a legit mental illness or be in the midst of like a drug induced whatever. And then also if you have it in you, like these, um, these animosities that is going to work in tandem Mm-hmm. you know but I, I don't know from what you're saying I don't know either if he specific it's it would be different if it were something like god forbid had he like gone into a synagogue like what right we see here where it's like I, they have a manifesto right. or something like that but yeah it's yeah. not like it's one or the other like they can both be true at the same time that right. he was anti-semitic and also was mentally just in another world when this happened mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and I think that one um, psych- uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, I, I quoted, I think his, he broke that down as well, where he, you know, a lot of the outrage is, um, I mean, it, it's so complicated because added onto it is like the really um, dark history of um, recent Jewish history in France and how, um, you know, there have been a, a, a lot of attacks, like a disproportionate number of attacks um, anti-Semitic attacks. Um, but then, you know, this, the, the headline is, you know, this guy got off cause he was too stoned. Right. And how that is perceived that, how that is fucked up. Right. If that, you know, on that surface layer, but then if you really dive into it and yes, he actually had a psych, uh, you know, these psychiatrists agreed, he actually had a psychiatric break and was not mental, you know, isn't, wasn't, I guess, I mean, that, I guess, exempts him from being mentally fit for trial, regardless of how I don't, the cannabis or I guess, but then like, um, right. Like you said, like it, it was still this, um, anti-Semitic act, but you know, they don't negate each other. It's just, it's so complicated. I just, I didn't expect the, <laughs> for, for when I was doing this research for it to all the different layers to come out in that way. Right. Because when, it, it's easy to protest. I mean, I'm, big protests, I think, usually do form over simpler concepts than, and then when you actually break things apart, sometimes it is more, it is weirder than sometimes you really know it's going to be or think it is based on the headlines, um, which isn't to say that, you know, I think, I think there should be protests over, um, the anti-Semitism going on in France, right? And if this is the the rallying cry, I guess, you know, I guess it, that's what it is. But this specific story is just, it's, I mean, it's horrible, but also like not simple. So are they thinking about putting him in like a mental institution or it's just he's completely like as if nothing happened? Yeah, so I think he's just out. I think that is that is part of the um, the outcry is that they're 
he's just free to go i think i haven't read anything saying that that's not the case because i could see you know because i'm you know i'm not pro incarceration right you know right how i feel but i do i was thinking it was like you know how we have it here where a person might not be sent to a prison Mm -hmm. but they're put because they're seen as a danger Mm -hmm. they're put somewhere else Right. Which, you know, a lot of those places are inhumane, but it's not unreasonable to be thinking. Like, if a person is prone to having mm-hmm. these types of episodes, you don't know mm-hmm. what they might do again. The thing that really, that I hate about these things, mm-hmm. like, not, not only is it horrible what happened, but the way that it gets manipulated mm-hmm. and then used as a cudgel against everybody who looks yeah. like him. Yeah. Where I'm like, God damn it. Like, it's so... Right. It is, it is so complicated and messy. And I think also what adds to that too, is I think, you know, as um, liberal people, especially I think in the United States and our own history of um, uh, anti-Muslim bigotry, right? Like, I think there's a lot of, um, it's very difficult to talk about these these issues because like we've talked about on the show before right like um just because you are high prices earlier um we have trouble talking about the persecution of jewish people by other marginalized communities which is a thing that happens um because it also because it is abused by um like right-wing people right it's it's such a complicated like these things are issues that should be talked about right um but it is just like you said, used, reframed in ways that um, further marginalize communities, which is, you know, yeah, it's 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 a very difficult topic to talk about without it getting twisted um, in a way that further hurts um, members of the community. Yeah, I mean, wrong is wrong, like whatever yeah. happened, you know, but it, it's not right to then right. pathologize whole groups because of the actions of that one person, because you never really see it happen when mm-hmm. when you have these anti-Semitic attacks that are much more cut and dry, it doesn't mm-hmm. then become like, well, I'm scared of all Norwegians because right. of what that guy did, you know and I'm yeah. saying? So it's yeah. like, you, you just have to use discernment. Like you definitely have to talk about it, but you also have to like look at the source and who, what their agenda might be and yeah. use discernment and who's saying what, but you definitely have to talk about it because it's not acceptable what happened. Right. And yeah, I don't and- know what his history was. Like, I, I'm sure that's not the first time he did something like violent or especially if she was afraid before like maybe Mm -hmm. something could have been done before this point right yeah and what just like what you said too we never (laughs) we don't we like white people are never blamed for the actions of another bad white person right but of all every other community yeah marine le pen like yeah her father's like king nazi yeah 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 for real for real real. but like then they'll try to use this because it's like against most yes you can't trust what they're saying no absolutely not right exactly and um Right. And it's been every other um, like marginalized community, like, you know, all Jews are blamed for other bad Jews and Muslim, you know, like Muslims as well. And it's it's a really, again, just like another product of 
um, like the right supremacist ideology that's it's really, you know, blankets most of the world, um, you know, where it pits um, other uh, marginalized communities against each other um, pretty frequently. Yeah, there's so many complicated variables here, but at the end of the day, I don't know, maybe I'm playing devil's advocate. Um, the fact that he's saying he was delirious off of marijuana or cannabis. I don't know. Something something ain't right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot not right here. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um, and obviously they're not framing this for I I just don't feel like it's being taken serious enough. Um, mm-hmm. because we've co- you know, we've been covering stories of this nature on the show for a while. And I don't see any major things being done by the French government to protect the Jewish community. Like where, where are these protections put in place? Is there any sort of support being offered um, programming or anything at all to kind of counter this violence um, for whatever reason that it's happening there? Where is that? You know, you just hear a couple of, some wordplay, some semantics, but an actual move to protect people of the Jewish community in that country has not been made. And Mm -hmm. that is an issue. Yeah. Well, if you don't want to talk about things or you don't want to be real about, you know, the fact that, look, we have people of many different cultures in the same place. Mm -hmm. If you want to be in denial, that kind of makes that difficult. Like when you want to address it, Mm-hmm. You know, and like pretend that like these differences don't matter or like if you don't talk about it, it's not real or something. I don't know. Like that's it's yeah. counterproductive. It's mm-hmm. There are things away. that are specific, you know, like there are specific types of bigotry that you have to address specifically. Mm-hmm. Right. One by one. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not something that you could just group under some big umbrella no. um, because that's not how it comes out. You know, right. if you see this progressing in this way then there's obviously a real problem and there needs to be some adjustments to how these stories are told, how they're shared and also how they're handled and protections for people of all faiths and in their community to be, Mm -hmm. have an open table to fucking talk about the issues. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Cause a lot of times not to say things get solved, but an open table, at least it helps us to understand It, it provides a, a deeper level of understanding for everyone when we have conversations that enlighten us about other people's path. Storytelling is key to healing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. at the very least, there needs to be, um, you know, things put in place, programming, understanding, community talks, whatever there can be to help this this country address these issues. All yeah. right. So we are going to rush through our good news story because yes. we have a lot to say today. Emily, yes. what you got for us? All right. So this is a little weird good news story. Um, sort of silly, but pretty cool too. Um, it comes from an April 25th article from the Good News Network titled The World's Oldest Known Wild Bird Named Wisdom Hatches Another Chick at 70. Um, so Wisdom is a lazen albatross, uh, which My and they girl usually summer. Yeah. Um, And they usually mate for life, but because this bird is ancient, in my own words, um, biologists suspect that she's had other mates in her life that she's outlived. Her current mate is named Akia Kamai. Um, Albatross don't usually lay eggs each year, and and when they do, it's only one at a time. Um, So biologists think she's had about 30 babies in her life. Um, 
these birds, uh, quote, share incubation duties for 20, 65 days. And once the chicks hatch, they share feeding duties. So the both parents take care of the babies, which is fun. Uh, quote, every year, millions of albatrosses return to Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge to their same nesting site. Uh, Wisdom the bird was first banded in 1956. Um, this bird is from 1956. So scientists know that even as of as of even 10 years ago, she'd already flown at least two to three million miles in her lifetime. Um, the article notes that that's something like four to six trips from the, uh, to the moon and back. Uh in case like me, you don't know what it means for a bird to be banded, um, the Smithsonian's National Zoo website explains that, quote, in order to identify and keep track of individual birds, scientists put aluminum or colored bands on birds' legs. Um, so, and that, like, the system was first done in 1902, and they're, they each have a unique set of numbers on the band. Um, so it's a really old practice. Um, so anyway, Dr. Beth Flint of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is quoted in the Good News Network article as saying, um, each year that wisdom returns, we learn more about how long seabirds can live and raise chicks. Her return not only inspires bird lovers everywhere, but helps us better understand how we can protect these graceful seabirds and the habitat they need to survive into the future. So Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge is located in Hawaii and is the place where over 3 million individual birds live or breed. Uh, if you want to, quote, support the conservation work of volunteers and staff working to restore the habitat and remove invasive species, you can check out the website um, friendsofmidway.org. And that is the cute little weird old bird story. <laughs> I know, right? Cute. This bird is 70 years old. That's crazy. And ladies, it can be true for you, too. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I love, Layla I love likes the bird, it too. Right? I love the bird's that's name. Right. I was about to say that's Oh, right. sorry. <laughs> yeah, Layla well, the cat, out. of course. The cat likes birds, right? That's a thing. Anyway. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for that story. That was awesome. Yeah. And, and thank you all for listening to this week's Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with a really cool track. It comes from an artist named Corday. Um, he's a Maryland-based MC who on his first album was nominated for two Grammys. The album was called mm. The Lost Boy. And this is his new track. It's called Dream in Color. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye and happy birthday, Aunt Sabrina. This is airing Aww. on her birthday. So. Happy birthday, Aunt Sabrina. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. I dream in color and I sleep on a canvas. I think we all need each other. Empathy that could be our advantage. Bad bitch speak Creole and Spanish. She looked this way, then I'm liking my chances. Oh man, why I go on these tangents? Bird's eye view, this shit panoramic. Still firing off my paranoia. Shit too real, just fire my lawyer. Trust issues, I'm needing to fix it. That could be an empire destroyer. You seen what happened to Julius Caesar? Stevie Wonder told me.